It's great to be together. Welcome to this summer series as it launches right here in week number one. If you're here for the first time, you have picked a great week to pop your head in here. And we're going to immerse ourselves in the life of one of the most extraordinary people that have ever lived, a pivotal character in the Old Testament. So check out this for his resume. Uh, let's see if you would like to have this on yours. Humanly speaking, this man, Moses, humanly speaking, he, I think he would be considered the founder of the nation of Israel. Not bad. He was given the law. So we have a piece of literature here with 10 iconic, incredible truths that are simply known really to the world around as the 10 commandments. Huge. That have impacted really most of civilization for several millennia now. It was Moses. He established Israel's worship. And that's a big, big deal for the nation of Israel. And certainly was the cause for them to really draw close to God, to return to God. They really had come away from Him and to love God. And then lastly, just to show off, he actually organized this country's government entirely. And he led the entire nation out of several centuries of enslavement. And found himself a successor that would bring them into their promised land. Not a bad life. Pretty well done. Today, three major religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, they cite Moses as one who brought their divinely inspired moral code. And outside of Jesus Christ, I think, I think you could probably say that Moses may have been the single most influential person to ever live. That's a big whopping statement. He's certainly one of the most wonderful characters in the Bible, and my hope is, as we go through the summer here, or maybe a few weeks or even months from now, you're just going to look at Moses as this kind of new friend of yours who's just going to come into your life and teach you incredible things about God. So we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus. That's where we're going to spend probably 90 to 95% of our summer will be in the book of Exodus. For anyone learning about this story for the first time, I'm so delighted that you're here. It's almost like, do you ever watch a really, really good movie? And then you're talking to your friend, and you're talking about their the movie, and they're like, I haven't seen that movie. And you're like, what? How could you not have seen that movie? It's a great movie. And then you're like, I'm so jealous. I'd love to watch that for the first time again. And you really want to sit down with them and watch it together and see their reaction and see what it does to them. That's how I feel for you as we dive into this book. It is actually a very grandiose book in terms of like the stuff that's in it. So much of it is on like a huge scale, like really, really large things happening uh, to kind of in an international way, on a global way, and Pharaoh is, uh, and Moses are right in the middle of all of that together. Pharaoh, the head honcho of Egypt, as we launch in here, you're going to see, has um, brought about this edict, this law, where he is going to kill every newborn baby boy that belongs to this slave nation, Israel. And so as we start off, it's very dramatic and sensational, and it's actually extremely dangerous as well. That's kind of the context as we bump into a few of these verses. So we're going to start off in chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 10 verses. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, now we're going to look at that a little bit more in a few minutes. It's a unique description. She hid him for three months. So why did she hide him? Well, Pharaoh was about to enact genocide. In fact, had already begun. When she could hide him no longer, she took from him, uh, for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. 
And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket amongst the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took pity. Uh, excuse me, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called, unbelievable, and called the child's mother. So just moments ago, this mother had put her baby in a basket like, I will never see you again. I have no idea what's going to happen. And moments later, this child is being returned to its mother. Unbelievable. Um, and the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So she's even getting paid. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, we're not really sure exactly what age, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out, and that's what Moses means, to be drawn out. I drew him out of the water. That's the beginning of an extraordinary life, and it is an extraordinary beginning. Now, if I could, I want to take a moment, and I want to just take a tiny step back, and I want to show you the larger picture and context of Moses' life. So if we were to go back a little bit more in time, what we'll see is there's a sort of a predecessor, a gentleman by the name of Abraham. Abraham had an encounter with God, and God made a covenant promise that from Abraham would be born a nation of people. These would be God's chosen people, and that they would not just exist for themselves. So it wasn't that like, oh, this is a special group of people, go ahead and be special. Not at all. Like, I have you chosen for a very specific purpose. God said to Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. I'm going to put in place an incredible global plan through you, Abraham. It's going to start with you. It's going to bump into Moses. And the intent of this nation of people is that they would actually help bring redemption to the human race. This is God's plan. Abraham is the starting point of a massive global plan of salvation. And as only God can do, he puts the pieces together over generations and generations. I can't even remember yesterday. Never mind, what am I going to do next week? God has this incredible outlook that he's actually looking over centuries and millennia. And so we see these names that come generation after generation, names like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and 12 tribes and even our friend Moses. It moves into places of sort of Israel's golden monastic era where you have King Saul, King David, King Solomon. All of this is the generation of God put, putting all of the pieces together of, of a master plan of global salvation that he would accomplish through this nation. It's an incredible plan over the course of time. All of that from the seed of Abraham. It's all leading in one direction. The direction that it's leading to is actually the birth of not the child that we see in Exodus chapter 2, but the birth of another child altogether that would come many years later. And that would also be found in the context of another genocide. So all these years prior to Moses... Abraham leaves his home, the promised land, and he goes to the country where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 2. He goes to Egypt. Why did he go to Egypt? Well, he actually went to Egypt because he was just trying to survive. There was a massive famine. 
This was a place where they could get some food and live. So Abraham and his descendants, they escaped to Egypt. And over the course of time, some of the names that I mentioned in these generations, we find this one individual by the name of Joseph. And he actually gets tremendous favor. He's so gifted that he he rises really to the cream of the crop. And he becomes the number two guy in this superpower, global superpower of Egypt, right underneath Pharaoh. And Joseph is favored by Pharaoh, and his family is favored, and his descendants are favored. What happens is time passes by. And then more time passes by. God knows what he's doing, a big overarching plan. The Old Testament tells us there's something like probably 400 years between Joseph and where we find ourselves today. And there arises a new Pharaoh, and another new Pharaoh, and another new Pharaoh, obviously, as time goes by. Until we get to a point where we bump into this Pharaoh, who does not remember Joseph, does not remember to favor his descendants at all. And what happens to this entire tribe, this nation of people, is they actually become slaves inside of Egypt. The whole country is enslaved, and they are used and abused by Egypt. Now, around this time, Egypt, which is a major global empire, as history also uh, often tells us, there comes in different tribes and countries, and they're sort of snipping at the heels of Egypt. We want to take back, we want territory, the normal stuff. But Egypt are not really intimidated by that, but they are intimidated by something. It's actually something very internal for them. Egypt are intimidated by this nation of slaves who work for them. And you would ask yourself, well, why would you be intimidated by a bunch of slaves? Don't you like just have them under your thumb and you're suppressing them and getting them to do whatever you want? Well, the reason why is because Israel went population explosion. They just had babies and babies and babies to the point where Egypt said, we can't wrap our arms around this many people. What did I read the other day? Um, I wonder, what did my parents do all those years ago when there was no internet and they were bored? I asked my 18 brothers and sisters, and they don't know either. (laughs) Well, that's kind of what happened here. It just exploded a massive quantity of people. Population growth. And so Pharaoh actually does several things to try to depopulate them, to kill them off. And finally, he decides on this very, very evil solution, genocide. He actually would have baby boys simply thrown into the River Nile to kill them. This plan is from the pit of hell itself. I believe it was authored by Satan, who will do anything he can to ruin the plans of God. That he detected God is at work through this particular nation, and so I want to exterminate. And then as you look through the pages of history, how many times has this one particular country, it seems to be on the brink of extermination again and again? I believe it is a satanic thing. He sees God's ultimate plan of redemption. And then we see, many years later, the exact same tactic when Christ comes into the world as a baby boy. But it's not Pharaoh. It's Herod. It's not baby boys in Egypt. It's baby boys in Israel several centuries later. But it's the exact same genocide for the exact same purpose. Satan trying to quench and stop and kill off God's incredible plans for this world and for you and I. To which I have to ask you, church, is anybody greater than our God? There's nobody. Our Father is greater than the Father of lies. Amen? Who can stand up against our God? Who can even begin to compare with the King of Kings? 
Who can say, I'm going to take God's plans and I'm just going to stop them. I will thwart God's plans. Nobody can do it. The New Testament says God's enemies are a footstool for his feet. And that is the God that we serve. That is the God that is at work in Exodus chapter 2. That's our context. That's what Moses was born into. And in the middle of that is our story. Moses is born, and his mother sees, the scripture says, that he is a fine child. Another um, translation says he is a very beautiful child. It is it's sort of um, the idea that the mark of God is on this child. It's an implication that God's hand is on him. And although it would be difficult for any mother to see their child taken away, I think for Moses' mother, as she places him into this basket, what an impossible scenario. In that moment, and I want you to think about this larger plan. When this woman is putting this baby into a basket in the middle of a river, you've got to look at that. and You have to kind of say, God, your plan, this incredible plan through generations of people, it's all a little desperate in this moment, isn't it? I mean, could you imagine putting your child in a basket in a river? Hello, social services. This is not a good thing. You can't do that. And yet somehow God is orchestrating that a baby's going to be in a basket in a river to survive death and genocide. God, what's happening to your dream? What's happening to your covenant, to your plan? And how are you orchestrating these things? Because this seems like it's really kind of hanging by a thread here. It doesn't look like it's going very well. This plan isn't working. God actually has been silent for several centuries. And those nation of slaves, God's chosen people, They've actually forgotten God. They've completely forgotten Him. I think it's in Joshua chapter 24. It says that they, had, they were no longer following God and that they were now following these many little gods that belonged to the nation of Egypt. So you've got this baby boy in a basket floating down a river that represents God's plan. God's incredible global dream. His covenant. And I would suggest to you today that it is hanging by a thread, a slender thread. But we see that God is at work. The baby is found of all people by the daughter of Pharaoh. This is the Pharaoh who condemned babies just like this one to die. Now, side note, can I just say this to you today? Honestly, sometimes... I try to understand God's plans and the things that he writes down, the things I see him doing. And sometimes I'm like, God, are you sure you know what you're doing? Am I totally alone with that? God, your plans, like, sometimes I read this stuff, I'm like, really? Because if I knew everything and had all power and knew the beginning from the end... I don't think I would do it the way that you're doing things. In fact, sometimes I look at your plans, God, I'm like, they're fairly crazy the way you've kind of orchestrated and put the pieces together. In fact, I think you've kind of made it even harder on yourself. If you want, God, why don't we sit down and I could give you a little bit of advice and I could set you straight and maybe I could tell you how to do things so they'd be a little more steady. Have you ever wanted to do this? If you've ever prayed the prayer, God, look, God, if you just listen to me, because if you do do this and this, I promise you, that's going to go better for me. And then God doesn't do those things. You're like, God, seriously, I really think you need to listen to me. Am, am I alone on this? Okay. <laughs> I'm waiting for the lightning bolt. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing, God? 
Sometimes I just want to sit down with God and maybe help him out. God, your plans, they seem so risky. They seem so dangerous. It seems like such a long shot. Sometimes they're very sensational and kind of dramatic. I think I could come up with a more stable way to put some plans together. To which God says, Isaiah chapter 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. In fact, as the heavens are higher than the earth, let me tell you the difference between you and me. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. It's actually quite a bit of repetition in these two little verses here. It's like God saying, I really want you to get this. What I'm doing, it's above your pay grade, I'm telling you. You're not even, you're not even thinking at the same level that I'm thinking at. I heard a story years ago. It may be true, but I'm not really sure if it's true. I've read it on the internet. It, I don't, I, it may be true, I don't know. Albert Einstein, uh, during his life, had a chauffeur who would drive him uh, and he would do the sort of circuit where he would do the speaking tour and go from university to university. And one day his chauffeur came up to him and said, listen, I've heard you give that talk on quantum physics many times now. He would speak on the same subject as he would travel. He said, seriously, I, I think I could give the talk on quantum physics. I've, I know it. I know the whole thing. And Albert Einstein says to him, well, next university, why don't, why don't you give the talk? And we'll say that you're me and I'll be you. Now, I, this is where I don't know if it's true because to me, Albert Einstein is kind of unmistakable. You know, he's got that crazy hair. Maybe his picture wasn't as uh, widespread during the course of his life. I, I don't know. But so the story goes, they swapped places and the chauffeur introduced himself as Albert Einstein and Albert Einstein sat in the corner as a chauffeur with the chauffeur's cap on the whole thing. And he got up and he gave the talk on quantum physics and he was brilliant, like he had the whole thing memorized and he did a great job. Until at the very end, the student puts up a, a hand and says, I have to ask you a question about quantum physics. And the chauffeur is like, oh no. Real quick he goes, that question is so easy, I'm gonna have my chauffeur answer it. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's true or not. Sometimes I think this, the way we think and the way he thinks and functions, it's almost like, it's like trying to teach a three-year-old quantum physics. I don't care if you get Albert Einstein himself to teach the class. They're not going to get it. Why? Because it's quantum physics and the kid's three. There's just no way we're getting it. And there's some stuff that happens with God that's just above my pay grade and it's above your pay grade. If you feel today like God has your world upside down and it doesn't really add up in terms of your logic and your rationale and your capabilities and your plans, then what God's actually doing is he's got you living by faith and not by sight. It's rarely comfortable. But God doesn't depart when things become uncomfortable or complicated. That's actually when we depart. That's when we bolt. But that's when God says, finally... An opportunity for you to trust me, to lean on me, to understand me, and to look to me in your life. My children are out of control. I don't know what to do. I've tried this and this and this, and they mean so much to me. And my heart is broken because I can see them wandering down the wrong roads. God, I don't know what to do. What, what should I do? I go to work and it's miserable. My boss, I can't even look at him or her anymore. It's too much. It's toxic. I hate going in there. God, what do I do? I'm just trying to survive day by day. 
My marriage has come to this sort of point system. Who's going to win? And it's tit for tat and, and snipping at each other. And God, it feels like the love is just kind of fading and it feels like everything's evaporating and it's not going well and I've run out of patience and I've tried my hardest. I think my marriage is on life support. This matters. God, I feel desperate. How about this one? God, I keep doing what I should not be doing. I keep wanting what I should not want. I know I'm not supposed to want it, but here's the truth. I still want it. I know it's not good for me, but I want it. I want this in my life, I think maybe more than I want you in my life. That's the truth. What am I supposed to do? It's embarrassing. If anybody knew, I'd want to dig a hole and get into it. And I still want it, even though it's so shameful. God, I have no idea how to stop wanting what I want, even when I know that it goes against you and it's no good for me. And God says to all of those scenarios, finally, finally, good. Not that you're desperate or that you're in pain or that you feel like you're turned inside out. God says, finally, you've run out of energy. You've run out of your answers and your solutions. Finally, you know it's beyond you. Finally, you're feeling the punch and this ain't fun anymore. When life is uncomfortable and you are done trying to find the fix for your problems, trying to find the solutions, that's generally the moment in your life where you'll actually become real with God. This is the life of Moses. He is a case study for in over your head. And you and I, we try to do everything we can to outthink, outsmart, outnegotiate, outmaneuver, ever getting to that uncomfortable place. It is as though comfort itself has become our deity, our God. We must be comfortable. And anytime we're not, we are just screaming at God, get me out of this discomfort. And here's what I would say. No one ever succeeds at that in life. You will bump into speed bumps or worse. To which God says in the context of all of this, and it's what he says to Moses, will you trust me? I'm looking for somebody who will trust me. Here's the question. Will you trust me enough to do what I say? Oh, I'm just uncomfortable, God, get me out of this. No. Will you trust me? God, why do you put your plans together like this? They're crazy. Your plans are crazy, God. They're way too risky, way too long shot. You see, God's not afraid of this category called impossible. We hate that category. It doesn't fit us at all. He's waiting on these moments because he knows the likelihood of you truly reaching for him, genuinely looking for God in your life, is at the crossroads of despair and exhaustion. That's finally when we go, oh God, I think I need you now. And when you are comfortable, you simply will not look for God. I think that's why we have so many of these moments in the Bible. David and Goliath. Come on, God. What are you doing? That's a crazy plan. It's a child and it's a giant of a man. It doesn't make sense. It's impossible. And God goes, yep. It's just what I want. Perfect. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. 
One dude against hundreds for this public showdown. God's like, I'm just warming up. This is exactly what I want. It's extremely difficult. Joseph, he was one of the names that I mentioned as we looked at just the history of this. One of those generations. There are years of his life that he spent lying in a dungeon, completely forgotten about. God, what are you doing in this plan? It doesn't make sense. This isn't working. Do you trust me? Hosea, trying to love his wife while she willfully, repeatedly is prostituting herself with other men. He can He can't even bear it. His heart is ripped into pieces. Hosea, do you trust me enough to do what I say? Oh, God, this is tearing me asunder. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, nobody's listening to him. He is ignored, mocked, rejected, beaten, ridiculed. And God says, prophet, say it again. A hard message to a hard people. I don't want to do it, God. Do you trust me? Yes, I do. And we discover that faith in the good times, actually, it may not be faith at all. Trusting God when all is well doesn't really require much trust. None of these people in the Bible that I've just mentioned, none of them had it figured out. We read these stories, and we know the beginning and the middle and the ending of Sometimes I think we read these stories like they're fairy tales. These are real people. They were really worried, like just you are. They were really anxious. They were really were biting their nails off. They were pulling their hair out. And they were really were angry. And they really were upset. And they really were freaking out. And they really didn't know the answer. And they didn't know which way to turn. And in his wisdom, he says, I will leverage that adversity for your benefit. And again, he asks you, do you trust me today in your life? Do you trust me enough to do what I say? The death sentence that Pharaoh intended to use to destroy these babies ends up meaning that this little baby right here will be raised with the finest education available in the world. Pharaoh, who intended to destroy Israel, ends up setting up this child with incredible education as the benefactor and sponsor of the very person who is now going to liberate Israel. Only God can do that. Impossible odds. What are you doing? Watch me. In fact, this unlikely drawing out, that's his name, this unlikely Moses out of the water, caught by Pharaoh's daughter, creates the exact set of circumstances that God would require to accomplish his plans. Look at this description in the New Testament about why Moses was perfectly fitted for this life, this battle with Egypt, this battle with Pharaoh, this battle to set this country free. It says in Acts, Moses was educated in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in speech and action. Now, what's comical about that is, as we'll learn in a week or two, what Moses says is one of the main reasons why he's like, God, I can't do this. He says, I can't talk. I can't speak. And the New Testament says he's powerful in speech and action. Maybe, just maybe, God knows what he's doing. Moses' own sister negotiates things so that he can grow up in the care of his family. And against overwhelming odds, that's how I think God likes to work. God is at work in the life of Moses. His birth is not the only time that it would be like this for Moses. In fact, this kind of stuff is going to happen again and again over Moses' life. 
It is the story of God's relentless and miraculous care for his people in unbelievable ways. The whole story of Moses is the story of God doing amazing things in the hardest of circumstances. Is it easy? No. Anything but. Is it quick? No. It's Moses' entire life. Is Moses the perfect pick? Does he check all the boxes? No, he's incredibly flawed. He has major out-of-control anger issues in his life. He is not a saint. In fact, Moses is a murderer. He is a violent murderer. And that is who God picks to be one of the most influential people to ever live. That's who he picks to be part of his ultimate plan of global salvation. There's a time when Moses longs for God to do something and God doesn't do it. There are times when Moses cries out to God and he cannot hear him. There are times when Moses feels alone. There are times when Moses follows God well. And there are times when he doesn't and he completely resists God. He is a very human person. So who here today, and you would honestly say, the current description of my life right now as I know it and experience it, we'll put it into the category of, this is really hard. You might say you're out of your depth. The reason why you would say that is because you would say, I actually don't have an answer. I don't have the skills or the network or the connections or the smarts or the money to fix whatever it is that's going on. And it's important to you. Who here has a family member, a loved one, and caring for them, it seems beyond your bandwidth. Who here has this quiet internal struggle and it is dogging you. And if anybody knew, you dare not tell anybody. You don't really know what to do with that. Who here senses that God has a call on your life? Who here senses that God has a call over your life to do great things for God, but maybe, just maybe, there are going to be great, big, difficult things for God? To which God would say, Do you trust me? Do you trust me enough to do what I say? Let's pray. Father, we commit this summer to you. We commit this season of our life as we journey through the book of Exodus, as we encounter this man called Moses. God, we recognize your comfort with the impossible, and that makes us so uncomfortable and so uneasy. But God, today we just declare with our lips that we trust that you know best, that your thoughts are way higher than ours, way better than our own. Today we commit our impossible to you. For some people here, we commit what is of utmost importance to us. Something that we wish we could wave a magic wand at, but we can't. And we ask you, God, would you please take us by the hand? God, today in your presence, we place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is, God, we have no better destination. We actually know of nobody better than you to place our trust in. So God, we ask that you would draw out from us great trust and great faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, amen. Let's stand and worship.